difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. Scott Tobias. And Genevieve Kosky. With movie theaters still largely closed across the country, we're focusing on quarantainment, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're going to knock back two movies about drinking, one vintage and one NV. What does NV mean in this context? Tasha, I'm glad you asked. NV means non-vintage, so the opposite of old. Ugh, actually, non-vintage usually means that the wine blends together a product of different vintages. Some sparkling wines, for instance, will mix in reserve or older wines with newer wines. So that usage doesn't really work. Okay, let's do this. One of our films is like a Pinot and one is like a Cabernet? Okay, how so? Okay, here's the deal. I don't really know that much about wine, but I wanted to do something clever based around it because one of our movies involves a lot of wine and wine talk. But when I started researching it, I got confused and distracted. I just Googled opposite of vintage wine and landed on NB and thought, well, that'll do. But now you've exposed me as a phony. So why don't you walk us through what we're watching this week, Tasha? (laughs) Happily. First, we'll be talking about Sideways, Alexander Payne's 2004 comedy about two men, a failed writer played by Paul Giamatti, and an only sort of successful actor played by Thomas Hayden Church. The two of them go on a vacation in California's wine country shortly before the actor's wedding. That might sound like the setup for a genteel comedy, but any reflectiveness comes between acts of deception and moments of destructive bad behavior. We were reminded of Sideways by Another Round, the latest film from Danish director Thomas Vinterberg. Mads Mikkelsen stars as one of four middle-aged teachers who are inspired by the writing of a Norwegian psychiatrist and decided to attempt to maintain a blood alcohol level of 0.05 in order to live a freer, happier existence. What could go wrong with that? So this week, we'll talk about two men trying to drink away their troubles with wine. The next week, we'll double the men and move on to the harder stuff. Join us after the break. Tonight, we are celebrating Miles' book deal, published off. Oh, what's the title? The Day After Yesterday. Oh, you mean today? Um, yeah. Why did you tell them that my novel was being published? You have been officially depressed for like two years now. We're going to go have some fun, Miles. Do you remember fun? When a woman finds out how I live, and I'm not a published author, any interest she has is going to evaporate real quick. You guys should stay for the weekend. No, we have to get back for the rehearsal dinner. What rehearsal dinner? Oh, no. You're getting married on Saturday! Just now I could have told you some story, but I didn't. I told you the truth. I spent three years trying to extricate myself from a relationship that was full of deception. I am not Jack. A couple of years ago on Reddit, a user posted about an unusual purchase. A resident of the San Inez Valley, they stumbled upon and snapped up a familiar-looking car they'd seen for sale, the 1987 Saab 900 convertible from the movie Sideways. They had big, potentially profitable plans for it. Maybe they would even launch a business called Sideways Wine Tours if they could legally use that name. That, in fact, was what the post was about. 
But Reddit users brought up some other problems. The Saab 900 was a, quote, nightmare of a car. Would anyone want to ride around in the backseat of such a small car for the length of a wine country tour? Was it even safe? Would tours limited to three customers at a time be able to turn a profit? A subsequent item in a local paper, noting the car was now for sale again, suggests the idea didn't pan out. And since the owners of the Saab didn't really need a second car, they decided to sell it for $50,000. Its value inflated because it had once been in a movie people liked. One year later, it turned up for sale again on eBay for $5,000. What happened next is an internet mystery since the listing was removed, but it's a mystery that seems fitting for the sideways car, a car seen in a film deeply interested in what makes the elements of life valuable, be they art, love, friendship, success, trust, or a bottle of 1961 Chateau Chaval Blanc. It's also a film about what happens when that value deflates. Paul Giamatti stars as Miles, a novelist working a day job as a junior high English teacher, who's probably really a junior high English teacher with delusions of publishing a novel. He begins the film having seemingly reached bottom, divorced, living in a dumpy apartment, and reduced to stealing money from his elderly mother on the night before her birthday, which he'll miss, to fund a trip to wine country with his best friend Jack. Played by Thomas Hayden Church, Jack is an actor still coasting on the fumes of his long-ago stint on a soap opera, but that coasting seems to be near its end. Each has a different agenda for the trip. Miles wants to drink some wine, maybe play some golf, and forget about his troubles for a while. Never mind that his agent is making a last-ditch attempt to place a semi-autobiographical novel with a publisher, and that wine country is filled with memories of Miles' recently collapsed marriage. Jack, on the other hand, wants to get laid, as much as possible, and generally revel in hedonism in every way possible before diving into marriage. Along the way, they pick up two companions under false pretenses created by Jack, though Miles never really tries to clear the air. They're up there, Jack claims, celebrating Miles' soon-to-be-published book. That story makes them ideal companions for Stephanie, played by Sandra Oh, a free-spirited winery worker who takes a liking to Jack, and Maya, played by Virginia Madsen, a recently divorced waitress Miles has long liked and who seems to like him back. But where Jack can move forward with the deception, Miles hesitates, even as Maya makes her interest evident. It's not clear, however, whether he's forgotten how to open himself up to others or just reluctant to begin a relationship in bad faith. Either way, Miles fears disaster. And when disaster does strike, he's forced to consider how he ended up where he's landed, what to do next, and who he's hurt along the way. Sideways is a film about the damage men do, whether through reckless abandon or passive selfishness. But for Miles, it's also the story of someone who comes to recognize just how far he's fallen short of the man he wants to be, how devalued he's become as a person, in his own eyes and the eyes of others. But it's also the story of a man who comes to recognize he's been focusing on the wrong sort of failures. As the film opens, he thinks he's a failure because his writing career is floundered in a marketplace that has no room for original ideas, but infinite room for mediocrities. A way of thinking about himself that reaches a low point when his final rejection arrives while visiting a winery that sells mediocrity by the barrel. Without this achievement, he thinks he's nothing. But maybe he's already nothing, or close to it. A man who drinks too much, who lashes out at those he's already driven away, and who has to specify which issue of Barely Legal he wants at a convenience store in order to avoid being given one whose pages he already knows too well. And maybe, for the first time, he realizes that's his fault. He's not the equivalent of a rare bottle of wine to be appreciated only by connoisseurs, or a -a one-of-a-kind movie vehicle ready to whisk fans from winery to winery. He's a wreck, and his damage is largely, if not entirely, self-inflicted. And though the final moments hold out a hope of redemption, whether he finds it or deserves it is left an open question. Why are you so into Pinot? (laughs) I mean, it's like a thing with you. (laughs) Uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's a hard grape to grow, as you know, right? It's, uh, it's thin skin, temperamental, ripens early. It's, you know, it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can just grow anywhere and uh, thrive even when it's neglected. No, Pinot needs constant care and attention. You know, and in fact, it can only grow in these really specific little tucked away corners of the world. And, and only the most patient and nurturing of growers can do it, really. Only somebody who really takes the time to understand Pino's potential can then coax it into its fullest expression. And then, I mean, oh, it's flavors. They're just the most haunting and brilliant and thrilling and subtle and ancient on the planet. All right, everybody. So standard beginning to, to, to our discussion. What do you think of this movie and what's your history with it? Yeah, so I saw the film at the Toronto Film Festival in 2004, and mm-hmm. I remember having a, just an extremely, you know, emotional response to it, and, and I put it on my top 10 list, and then I saw it again, and I really liked it. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> That's my history with it. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still a fan of the film. I still really like being in the world that Alexander Payne creates, the specificity of it. Uh, I think a lot of it is uh, very funny and observant. It's kind of affected my own uh, very simple ideas about wine. What wines I should? I don't think I've. <laughs> I don't think I've had a glass of Merlot since seeing the movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, it, you know, even though I think my taste is much more uh, like Thomas Hayden Church's character, and that and that'll have it and say, like, eh, you know, it seems fine good. to me. <laughs> it tastes great. <laughs> uh, so uh, no, I I, I enjoyed. I think it's a, it's a sort of a you know, a shaggy and, and, and fun and, and uh, full of your know, very specific detail and insight and laughs. So, uh, yeah, I, I, and, and I think it, you know, the moment that really mo- moved me back in 2004 still gets me again today, the, his, that scene with his uh, ex, just I think Paul Giamatti's reaction is just an incredible piece of acting. So, yeah, I like it. Yeah, like my primary memory of this film, which I, I know I saw when it came out, I think I actually may have owned the DVD back uh, as part of my Columbia House DVD membership. Ooh. Did any of you guys have the Columbia House DVD membership? No, CD, the, CD, the CD club, I was in a lot, but not, uh, yeah. but not the yeah. Uh, DVD. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how I procured my very old and cheap copy of, of Sideways. But I honestly don't know if I ever like rewatched it beyond 2004 when it like just had all of this buzz. It was nominated for a ton of Oscars, like all four of those performances. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, because I was like 20 when this happened, but I, I feel like they were like the buzzy performances of of the year as far as like awards bodies go. Yeah, Hayden Church and 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 Virginia Madsen both got Oscar nominations, but Giamatti and Sandra Oh did not. Oh, really? Okay. I remember, I particularly remember Sandra O oh being like a breakout, but maybe that was um, in reaction to her not getting nominated. Well, she'd but, been uh, locked into Arliss for so long. That's the only place I ever saw her before this. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and, and I'm sure she was fine on that show, but the show was kind of hard to watch a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I remember liking it at the time, but I also like never had a super strong connection to it, like the subject matter of like, you know, two middle-aged guys 
being kind of crappy. Uh, you know, it is not my, my normal bag. <laughs> but for the reasons that Scott was talking about, just in terms of detail and just like the character building in this movie is just so strong and you just get so many little moments, often wordless moments that tell you so much about who these characters are that I really kind of appreciate it on that level, even if these aren't characters I like. And I don't think we're supposed to like them. I think if you did relate strongly to these characters in a in a positive way, you know, that would maybe be a cause for some introspection. But, you know, I think just in terms of, a, you know, being a portrait of depression, it's quite effective and, you know, it, it occasionally funny. I think there was maybe like one or two laugh out loud moments for me, but it's more of, you know, like a sort of chuckling into your wine glass type of comedy. <laughs> Knowingly, ah, yes, yes, I see that joke. <laughs> uh, I think uh, this film hit Toronto in September of 2004 and then came into limited release in October after hitting a bunch of different film festivals. I just remember having... What seemed like at the time a strong sense of it before I saw it, I think I saw it very late in 2004 as part of award season catch up. And I'd already kind of like built up a head of, of existential dread of it because the reviews were positive, but they also just emphasized so much what an unpleasant person Paul Giamatti's character was, how venal and, and selfish and elitist and snotty he was and how the whole film was basically just about men's terrible behavior to women. So by the time I saw it, I was definitely thinking of it as like a, a cultural vegetables kind of thing. And I really didn't care for it much at the time. Rewatching it here, I see a lot more about where it's going and what it's doing. And I think that it comes to a very touching place at the end that's very sympathetic and tender in a way. I think the character building really is very strong. I think there are some very funny moments, but I still find that first hour very hard going. For the awkward comedy of it, the confrontational comedy of it, I don't necessarily enjoy... You know, if a villain is doing something terrible to people who you sympathize with, you know that that's going somewhere, you know, that it's being set up in contrast to something. But when you see a protagonist do something as awful as pretty much everything Giamatti does to both his supposed best friend and then his sweet old mother in the first act of this film, it just left me in a very squirmy place. And as Payne builds these characters scene by scene by scene of bad behavior and selfish choices and uh, snotty treatment of everyone around them and extremely narrow, nerdy behavior towards the one thing that Giamatti's character does care about, I just find it really, really hard to sit through. And you, there's a point where you get kind of to the the peak of the unpleasantness and then you go over the top of the roller coaster and it's just it's a a ride from there of you know humanistic discovery of these characters that's a lot more fun than i remember the film being or giving it credit for but i i think i'm done with rewatching this film i'm i'm tired of the trip up <laughs> we're not going to we'll we'll pair it with something else <laughs> it's, it's a sideways podcast now. yeah i i like this movie a lot and i think some of the squirminess you talk about i think is is a totally a legitimate point i mean Roger Ebert's line about movies being an empathy machine is sometimes it makes you empathize with people that you really don't want to, whose skin you really don't want to inhabit. I, I feel like this is one of those because, I mean, why, by bare description, would you care about Miles' happiness? I mean, he's 
an awful self-involved person, but you know, he's human like the rest of us, you know, and, and, and it's kind of, it's kind of puts you next to his you know hopes and dreams for so long. And you know, I think part of his journey is recognizing his flaws and how much he's the author of his own misery that I, I think by the end, you want something for him. And I don't necessarily, want, I don't think he necessarily wants those dreams to come true. And I'm really not sure he deserves, uh, you know, Maya deserves to give him the time of day, you know, when he shows up at her doorstep. But that's kind of outside the frame of the film, isn't it? Yeah. One thing that surprised me on this rewatch that I had not remembered at all about the film was like how early and plainly they address the fact that Miles is depressed. Like Jack says to him, you've been full on depressed for two years. He's taking Xanax and Lexapro. Like he, mm. he's medicated. Like he is clinically depressed and that is like foregrounded. And I, I feel like that is kind of rare at least for for films of of this era to like foreground the mental health difficulties of its of its protagonist so plainly and and so early in the film that it sort of contextualizes all of Miles's behavior especially when contrasted with Jack who is dealing with his his own issues but they are a little muddier and and wrapped up in some impulses, some some, some sexual impulses and uh, some fear of commitment and like some you know his own issues that are not as plainly stated, but do create a contrast to Miles. Yeah, I think you. Know, it's only toward the end you realize how messed up he is because you know he's just doing what men do. Except he's you right. Know, he's also just you know what men do can be awful, and, and it's also a symptom of some really unhealthy. You know, impulse control issues or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to diagnose him, but you know, he's. I'll, I'll he, diagnose he, him slightly. I, I think mm-hmm. he has some really foregrounded self-esteem issues that don't get laid bare until he's up against the prospect of losing the woman that he's planning on getting married to. What you said earlier about uh, the empathy machine sometimes making you empathize with people that you don't want to be in their skin. I, I find it hard by the end of the movie to empathize with him at all. But I think the movie does at least to some degree, underline that one of his big problems is like he has the terror of commitment. He has the terror of aging. He has the terror of not knowing where his life's going. But when he starts talking about his uh, incipient bride as he's nothing without her, he's Mm -hmm. just like an empty failure without her. I think it becomes pretty apparent that somewhere below his visibly inflated ego is just a a, a terrifying lack of self-esteem. That without her, I'm nothing line really stuck out to me, too, because it feels like a line that's directed at Miles, someone who has has lost his wife, who cheated on his wife. Another detail that, that I forgot until this rewatch. And, you know, we have kind of seen him being a, a walking nothing of a person. So in hearing Jack say in this like kind of, you know, big confrontational moment, you know, without my wife, I'm nothing. It feels like possibly a clarifying moment for Miles as well, or at least for us as it relates to Miles. Well, I mean, for one, I, I like spending time with these guys, so so the whole film is kind of enjoyable. <laughs> I think they have, you know, I mean, they don't have to be likable for me to to like that dynamic, which is so, again, so specific in terms of like this friendship that is kind of you know, to use a great metaphor, sort of died on the vine a little bit, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of aged uh, and gone sour uh, to some extent, yet there's still kind of a bond there and it's it's complicated and interesting. They're compelling together and they're also a very, very good comedy team. I mean, in terms of like laughs in the movie, like the, the whole bit about them crashing the car deliberately to cover up the, uh, <laughs> to cover up the, the broken nose, it's just 
I mean, uh, just on the floor both times I saw it. But one thing I will say, you know, again, I think this is part of the sort of integrity of the film is, uh, is I think that the film actually sort of yada yadas over moments that would make Miles more sympathetic, right? I mean, like, it shows you the worst side of him all of the time. But I think that that there is a lot of suggestion that in the right context, if he's at dinner, if he's on a picnic, if he's having a nice glass of wine, I mean, he's a learned guy. He has, he's a wit, you know, he's got, he can be charming. He has that side to himself, but the film blows through it. The film montages all that stuff away. Uh, It montages the stuff in the dinner between the four of them when he's being charming. It montages this kind of like magic hour picnic that the four of them have together. I mean, we really get, it has, I think the courage to show you miles at his worst and hope that you will find some connection with him. And I do ultimately, I think the film is hard one in its uh, depiction of that character. I mean, some of that may just be the the very smart decision to not show the art. You know, we've talked before about the problems of films that tell you this person is a fantastic artist in some way. You know, they've behaved very badly, but at least they're creating this art. And then they show you the art. And, you know, do you personally connect with whatever painting or song or book or whatever it is that they've created so much that you believe that it's worth everything terrible that they've done throughout the story? I think montaging over the times when he's charming, pain escapes the challenge of making him so charming that it covers up for the fact that he visits his mother the night before her birthday solely in order to steal a huge chunk of money from her. You know, decisions that he makes like that are, are terrible enough that he would have to be awfully damn charming to balance that out. And pain, I think, very wisely, instead of trying to make him that charming and convince you, just says, he's very charming. We're going to skip by that and skip to the point where people have been charmed by him. It's just, it's a smart storytelling decision. It's interesting to hear you guys talk about this because like, it never really occurred to me watching the film that Miles is especially charming. And I took Maya's attraction to him to be more about who she is as a person and her being a, uh, like a nurturing person. Like she's studying horticulture, you know, she's, when she taught, when they each kind of have their contrasting speeches of how they think of wine, she's talking how she thinks about it in terms of the people who make it and the connection and the beauty of it. And she's clearly this very like open and nurturing and generous soul. And I feel her connection to Miles both makes that apparent and strengthens it. Like he is sort of a little wounded bird, <laughs> you know, that she is is drawn to the way that some women are, you know, like not all women are drawn to strong, charismatic, capable men. Some want to like someone they can take care of. That's another impulse that can be behind relationships and love. So that was my reading on it rather than sort of, you know, Miles having this charisma that we never get to see. Well, Miles is telling her, you know, what she's going to nurture too. I mean, Miles is talking to her about this, you know, temperamental grape, you know, that, that, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and he, he is of course that exactly the type of grape that he's talking about. And, and mm-hmm. he's hoping that whatever, you know, haunting evocative flavors might come from a grape that is, that is uh, rare and well cared for can yield something more substantial 
than you know just your ordinary Merlot. I guess I don't know. So um, I, in that sense, I mean, I mean, I like those speeches a lot, but I mean, they are definitely telling us stuff. I mean, wine is just such a metaphorical thing. It's like chess, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there, there's no. A shortage of metaphorical uh, echoes you can pull from it. I don't think that I took her attraction to him as solely uh, wanting to nurse a, a baby bird back to health. I think there might be a little of that element, but I think for me, it seemed like it came a little more out of shared interests. When he mm, talks yeah. about wine, he is very eloquent. And we're led to believe that even though uh, his novel is unpublishable and apparently 10,000 pages long. <laughs> two boxes. Two boxes two, of manuscript. Two giant heavy boxes of manuscript. That was a laugh out loud moment, I, I, I will say. The second box. It is a good one. And I, just on top of that, when she asks him to describe it and he starts to describe it, it sounds pretty excruciating. But the way she talks about it later, I, you know, I don't know. There are just degrees to which some people are made for each other. You know, the, a person, regardless of whether they're uh, tall and handsome and charismatic or small and wounded and baby bird-like, <laughs> there are people that you look at and say, I would not be interested in that person. And there's somebody else who is – who's just suited for them in a way. And I think these two people are both presented as very damaged people who came out of relationships – a lot more fragile than they mm. used to be and who need very careful, gentle handling. And both of them eventually, after some trial and error, after some missteps, are available for that gentle handling. But they also both just really share some interests. Both of them make speeches about wine that for some people would be excruciatingly tedious and fairly pretentious. But you can see as each of them is making their speeches that the other one understands and is hearing it. So I don't want to put her in the, uh, in the mama category too readily. And I certainly don't want to imply that he's so charming that he overcame all of her initial reticence towards him. I, I think these two are just well paired. One of my minor objections to the film is a feeling that it sympathizes a bit with Jack's feeling that Miles is screwing up by not pursuing Maya harder, by not seducing her into bed and then walking away whistling to himself. To me, their entire relationship, and in spite of the misstep involving the lie about Jack, the lie about the book, none of which Miles really initiated, every aspect of the relationship seems to proceed as it should at the pace that they're both ready for, at the pace that makes them comfortable and makes sense for their relationship. And the degree to which we're kind of invited to see him as a bit of a loser because he just talks to her in the night that he spends hanging out with her at her friend's house instead of trying to jump her. I, to me, that was just like, these are two people that can really talk to each other, that feel heard for the first time in a while. Like, there's nothing wrong with any of this. Why are we being made to see it as a failure on his part? I agree with uh, what you say about their relationship. And I don't want to imply that I think like that is solely Maya taking pity <laughs> on Miles. I, I just think that like, you know, going back to this being such a just strong character building all around, I think that, you know, that discussion between them tells us more about who she is as a person and how she reacts to Miles than it tells us about him as a, you know, charismatic raconteur. I mean, they do have this common passion, and I think the passion is really legitimate and informed and central to their 
lives. You know, I, I, you know, I never really find Miles to be snobby in the movie. I think he is a connoisseur. Even at that last winery. Yes, definitely, especially <laughs> at the last winery. But that, even that, at what, that first winery. The, this, any of the what about wineries? all the wineries in between where he's a total snob? <laughs> but just, yeah, just like he care, he cares about these kind of you know special independent wineries he doesn't have a he doesn't like the big gaudy touring places with the guy on the acoustic guitar what about Um, when he has the shrieking fit outside the restaurant like the big laugh line of the movie the big sell line of the movie the big catchphrase of the movie where he shrieks about how if anybody orders any effing merlot he's gonna storm out (laughs) okay (laughs) but sales went down i know no i I stopped i was like gosh i kind of like merlot until he said that um (laughs) no i mean maybe so but i but i'm not saying i wouldn't I would not characterize it entirely as snobbery. I think I think it's something. This is something he cares about and knows about, and he has an interest in specific qualities of wine. He has a taste for it. I'm reminded actually there was a there was a documentary about winemaking by this director Jonathan Nossiter, and I remember Jonathan Nossiter was one of the thing, observations he made that kind of stuck with me was was uh, him saying something like you, you can't fall in love in a McDonald's, uh, you know, cause it's just not specific enough. You know what I mean? And, and I think that kind of applies here. There's something, there's a, there's a love that the, the two of them have for wine and perhaps later for each other. That's tied to something very particular that is not it, generic. That is not something that everybody gets to see on the tour. For the sake of our listeners, is that film called Mondovino? Is that the one? Mondovino. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he can be like, you know, smart and specific in his knowledge and still be a snob and how he chooses to express that. And that's okay. You know, like, you know, we're, we all have things that uh, we can be snobby about. I, I think many people who are not fans of this podcast might argue that, that we are snobs or can, can have snobbish tendencies. Uh, what? what? Huh? Film. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Scott's not the man of the people. <laughs> it's, all, it's, it's all a matter of, of positioning, you know. I think the, the the discomfort in that scene is less from it comes from Miles like being unable. There's you know he sees it, she sees it, we see it, but he doesn't have the courage to act on it. And not and I think at that point it's early enough that he can kind of maybe oh, kind of wave away the uh, the lie that Jack's gotten him into there and, and still establish a relationship. It's more about a fear of plunging and you know opening himself up at that point. But I mean, he's right in a way to be afraid of opening himself up. He's gone through mm-hmm. a traumatic experience. He's very depressed. He's still not exactly over his ex. And his reaching out to his ex at that crucial moment is excruciating. But it's part of the process of moving on. It's part of the process, the incomplete process of uh, getting over her. And as much as we might like disagree with his choice there, it's a smart story choice. It feels like almost a necessary story choice. So I like I just I don't feel like it's a bad thing the way it progresses or that we should be thinking like what a loser. And I don't think the film goes as far as Jack does in painting him as a loser for sneaking off to call his ex uh, drunkenly or not making a move on her at the house. But I do think that it does judge him somewhat and it does present these as sad choices. And I'm just I'm not entirely convinced that's true. I think the saddest choice is, of course, um, buying the barely legal and then having to specify oh. which, which issue. I mean, I mean, clipping his toenails next or, or grading papers in the hot tub and clipping his toenails next to the pool. Those were pretty sad. I mean, that, that's the, I mean that, those are just Alexander Payne moments, right? Yeah. It's like so 
great. And that's the kind of stuff I just get into. I like like the interior of his mom's house in Reseda. Mm. It's like, God, that is just so... I love the Great. crumpled f- grocery store bouquet, like sitting on top of the TV, still in its plastic, not even a vase. The bouquet yeah. that he had like taken the price tag off on his way to the door after scrawling his name on the card, you know, like all, just each yeah. one of those is a perfect little grace note that adds up to this like symphony of character. No, that's <laughs> the it. Way, I mean, the, way, the way the snack foods at his mom's house and the snack foods at Sandra O's house are, are completely different. You know, uh, uh, Stephanie has like this, you know, upscale Whole Foods kind Kind of, kind of snacks. Got some cool and, cheeses, some really yeah, cool some, cheeses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think this is insane uh, cheeses. Insane cheeses. I, yeah. I wanted the movie to stop for a minute and take a breath and tell me what insane cheeses were like. Uh, that just that was a fun little uh, dialogue detail. When you're talking about the specificity of interiors, uh, I also just want to call out uh, Cammy's house. As uh, oh god, as Miles is <laughs> sneaking back in trying to get his friend's wallet, that house. I've been in that house, you know, I, I know people who in fact have the mental issues that have lived like that. And every bit of it just felt so there are times that you see movies with messy interior houses that you're like, have you ever seen an actual mess in your life? This is a very calculated and poor attempt to address a, like a disheveled house would look like but but that house feels so lived in and familiar and and terrifying mm-hmm. uh, that entire tour into the life of cammy and her husband and their sex life frankly mm-hmm. their uh, kind of kinky sex life mm-hmm. i thought was just pretty fun i thought it was really interesting because like my memory of that scene was you know that he the miles sneaks in and sees them having sex and is chased out by you know a man <laughs> with a swinging dick like that's what's memorable about the scene but i don't think i necessarily registered what cammy and her husband were like saying to each other mm. as they were having sex and they're like living out this cuckold fantasy and you know, when we're dealing with a story about two characters with a, a history of infidelity, and in Jack's case, some uh, impulsive and destructive behavior wrapped up in, in infidelity, it's interesting to see that played out in a different context. There's also just a, like a kind of upending the cliche of the possessive husband that comes home and finds you in bed with his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, when when Miles first kind of noses his way into the house, the noises he hears could be a woman being beaten. Right. There is sort of the a fear. The subtitle said whimper, it said Cammy whimpering. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there, there is sort of the fear that after the story that Jack told, like what happened to Cammy as a result of all of this? Jack had the ability to run away. I mean, without his pants or his wallet, but he had the ability to run away. She's still kind of stuck in his life. So kind of peering into that life and seeing that they've just kind of turned it around and, and turned it into like a hot fetishy time together. It's it's just kind of a fun bit of subversion. Yeah. And something you just don't see in movies very much. I didn't realize that was Lost Star MC Ganey as the husband either. I knew he was familiar. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do recognize him. So yeah, the, I just I thought like the yeah, that's another thing too, is I, I love Alexander Payne's kind of interest in like non Hollywood bodies too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that's that's true of everybody. And it just of like, you know, guys walking around in kind of boxer shorts and stuff, and it's just something <laughs> there's something in socks. It's just, it just feels like that was part of all that too. Um, Even Thomas Hayden Church, the hunky character, is is not mm-hmm. like completely sculpted either. No, I mean he's he's long of the tooth. 
Yeah, and Thomas Hayden Church is such a because this was kind of a breakout for him. I know he was on Wings, but like he hadn't really done anything notable in film before this, right? No, yes, that's right. Yeah, and I was like just like staring at his face a lot during this movie. Obviously, his face is on screen a lot, but like it's such an interesting face because I mean, like Paul Giamatti is like the quintessential character actor face, you know, but Thomas Hayden Church kind of exists in this like space between like leading man handsome and character actor like strangeness you know and it like never quite tips over to to one or the other but it he just like has this very kind of specific look that it's like he's almost really handsome but there's something just a little bit off about him and that like i think translates really well to where his character is in his career and this was also a kind of a comeback for Virginia Madsen, who's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like we, I wish we saw her a little bit more than than, than we do. I mean, she works steadily, but like it's, I think her high profile roles kind of kind of she had a couple more after this, and then not so many. But uh, yeah, but she's she's so good in this film. I think all four of them are good. We haven't really yeah. talked about Sandra O oh much, and like I think of the four of them, her character has sort of the least layers to it, or her performance maybe has the least layers to it until that amazing confrontation where she beats the shit out of him with her motorcycle (laughs) helmet. Like, you know, that's the supporting actress for your consideration scene, you you know? Um, And she, she killed it. Like she's she killed great. his face. <laughs> yeah. And she kind of disappears after that point, but what else can she, she do? Right. Back. Yeah. I think that relationship yeah. <laughs> is over. <laughs> yeah. I just also really enjoy her introduction scene where you see her as pretty. I, I honestly think that that first introduction scene is very layered. Like she's flirty, mm. but you get the sense that she might be flirty in the way a lot of baristas are. Right. A lot of baristas or waitresses have to be in order to get along with their clients and to get tips. But at the same time, there's kind of a dismissive edge to her, to the way she treats people. There's kind of a feeling of, I know this is transactional. You know, this is transactional. But that gives us kind of room to play with it. She doesn't come across as, again, there are a lot of stereotypes that you can have with a character like that, where, you know, the the dumb flirt is one, the venal girl who's just out to get your money is one. And I feel like she sort of veers playfully back and forth between types without really necessarily letting you know where she is because the the character is doing that. Mm-hmm. I think the character is very consciously riding the line between I'm on your side and I'm on my side. And like from the beginning, I found that character pretty mesmerizing. I also like that Jack buys two cases of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Three. He buys a lot of wine from her. That's uh, very enjoyable. So we kind of touched on this before, but does Miles and Jack's friendship make sense? They was we, we learned they they met in college and they've stayed friends since. But it does seem like some of the stuff they have in common has kind of fallen away over the years. Am I wrong in seeing it that way? I kind of feel like the most interesting and subtle thing that this movie does is start us off in a place where Miles just seems like a terrible person 
and Jack is the old buddy who's sticking with him out of loyalty. You know, the, the much more easygoing and uh, friendly type who sees all of the bad things that his friend is doing and still chooses to stick by him. And then as the movie goes on, we see a lot more of what that relationship looks like and how much Miles does for Jack and how much Miles excuses in Jack. And bit by bit, we start to see Jack as equally as a selfish and self-centered and, and blinkered and bad behavior as Miles, and then probably a lot more so. And we start to see how Miles in many ways is like the loyal and brave one. And I think the, the fulcruming of that relationship is just a really, really interesting thing. But it also sort of gives us a reason to believe the relationship because both of them, when it comes to the, the clutch moments, have to try to be there for each other. You know, Jack is willing to chase Miles for a mile through the grape fields as Miles is trying to bolt down an entire bottle of wine by himself. Miles is willing to go into that house, uh, full of angry naked man and go for that wallet. You know, they're, they're there for each other. There's certainly the question of where that relationship started and how it developed. There's a point where Miles says just very wearily, you know, that he's not anybody in particular. He's his freshman roommate. But you do sort of get the impression that they've built the loyalty that they have to each other. One act of covering up for each other's unforgivable acts at a time. <laughs> you know who it reminds me of? And this didn't really occur to me until that scene, that perfectly balanced scene where each is on one side of the frame, when they're at the bar or the restaurant and there's a line, you know, the door kind of works as a divider. Their relationship kind of reminds me a lot of Charlie and Donald Kaufman in Adaptation, mm. where one, mm. where everything comes so, every just existence comes so, uh, is such a such a burden to one and the other kind of breezes through with seemingly no consequence. I mean, it goes, those relationships <laughs> goes very different places, but, but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's all echoes of it there. You watched some Nicolas Cage films recently, uh, did I, 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 I have. I have. Uh, <laughs> I would say I, I think that one of the crucial insights or one of the things that I think about this relationship is that, that it could not start at where they're at. I mean, they couldn't meet as middle-aged people for the first time and then strike up a friendship. So I think that's an interesting place for the movie to start with the fact that they have grown apart in significant ways. They don't have a whole lot in common other than this past that they share. And it allows us to kind of like fill in the rest. I mean, it's just the whole thing just feels persuasive to me. And that the, and the fact that they don't, that they're not in sync about a lot of things, you know, I mean, that, that's a dynamic that you want in a, in a, in a road movie, in a buddy movie, et cetera. And I think it, it also, you know, the film also kind of takes advantage of, gives you a little bit of separation morally between the two of them, because there are plenty of junctures in which, in which my, well, basically Miles finds what Jack is doing to be, repulsive i mean that he's a bridge too far for him i mean he will he will do things for his friend but it is upsetting and disappointing to him that jack has decided that this is what he wants to do with this time they have together and that that does give us at least some that gives miles a certain amount of moral integrity it gives him a sliver of it I mean, I think it kind of works both ways. I mean, like, this is a, a more cynical reading of, of their relationship, but they also each give the other, 
they each give each other the ability to go, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy, <laughs> you know, um, which is a, a form of enabling. Like they, they do enable each other in, in ways large and small. One of the <laughs> things that struck me at the very beginning, and, and part of that is because of the film we are pairing this with, is like one of the very first scenes, they open and drink a bottle of champagne while driving, <laughs> you, you know, um, like they're they're clearly, you know, not particularly concerned with the other's bad behavior. But the other person's bad behavior is Scott, you were talking about uh, with uh, with Miles or, you know, the other way with Jack being able to kind of say, like, look at Miles and be like, well, he's like so closed off to the world and he's depressed and he's, you know, Mr. Negative and, you know, he, he's medicated and at least like, I'm not that, you know, and it, it gives each of them a a worst case scenario to kind of put themselves against and justify their own bad behavior. That scene with the champagne in the car also gives us a very clear indication of part of the dynamic between them, which is that Miles is going to say, no, don't do that. Stop. And Jack's just going to go ahead with it anyway. And Miles is going to cave, which is a dynamic we see over and over and over throughout the movie. And uh, Jack has basically been trained to ignore no matter how many times Miles says, no, you want to talk about a movie about consent? (laughs) This is a movie where Miles does not consent to 90% of the things that Jack says and does, whether it's uh, guzzling down the whole glass of wine instead of uh, just breathing it or popping up with the champagne in the car or the big lies. But uh, he, he eventually sighs and goes along with it anyway every single time. All right. Well, there's lots to talk about it. We'll be talking about it more as we talk about another film about drinking next episode, which is a film called Another Round. In the meantime, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with some feedback. Now it's time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. This week, we're all still talking about Mank and Citizen Kane. Genevieve, can you share some feedback about that pairing? Sure. Uh, Jeff from Costa Rica writes, I'm not just writing in to complain because I disagree with your overall takes on Mank and think it's a fantastic film that will only be more appreciated over time. No, that would be petty. In fact, I typically agree with Tasha's insights, if not her overall level of enthusiasm for a film. Sorry, Keith. And Genevieve nearly always sees films the way I do, at home with a drink. Ha ha. Ha ha. Very funny, Jeff. <laughs> He continues, no, the reason I'm writing is because your episode on Mank made me really appreciate the work you've done on previous episodes, by comparison. What other film have you opened by spending 20 minutes talking about how it falls short of the greatest film of all time, or even just opening by comparing all the things that Classic Pair Up did better? I appreciate that you usually talk about the new film in its own right and on its own merits before making comparisons. Mank never had a chance with you guys. You slipped up behind it and shanked it in the kidney like a prison lunch line. I can anticipate the defense of the film itself invites the comparison, and yes, fair point, but I'd hope you'd bear in mind that a sizable portion of the viewing public hasn't watched Kane recently, and certainly doesn't look at a scene in a 1930s studio and recognize half the people on screen. It's been nearly 90 years since Kane, long enough that if Mank were a remake, it would be the defining version for this and the next generation. It deserves to be evaluated with fresh eyes before getting into its archaeological records. I know that can be hard with a back-to-back viewing as some of you seem to do, but I think in this case, the film geek enthusiasm to show off all the connections and highlight the references got in the way of giving the film a fair hearing on air. 
Well, guys, yeah, you guys you've really been taken to that task. With that island on that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, if, if you were there, Scott, Lord knows you would not be comparing Mank to Citizen Kane. No. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, uh, Scott, this is a good, it's actually a good opportunity for you to weigh in on Mank and Citizen Kane, but but uh, I, I back at the beginning of this letter, I, I think he, maybe he did complain to write about it, <laughs> complain, write in to complain about it around Mank, which is fine, that's, that's fair, that's fair. But also, know. may I point to the premise of this podcast? <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, sure, a, a lot of people watching may, may not have watched Citizen Kane right before it. But I would think, uh, you know, a somewhat sizable portion of our of our listeners who like to listen and watch along at home did uh, rewatch Kane. Uh, we, we received some letters from some people who rewatched it or watched it for, for the first time. And, you know, Jeff says, I can anticipate the defense of the film itself invites the comparison. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's the defense, at least as, as I see it. Um, I haven't revisited Mank. I don't feel a compulsion to revisit Mank. I will acknowledge that, you know, watching it in a different context, not for a podcast specifically designed to discuss two films in comparison, you know, I might have a, a different, potentially more more positive reaction. But, you know, this pairing more so than I think maybe anyone we've ever done is explicit. There's an explicit link between the two films. Like there was never a question that we would uh, pair any film besides Citizen Kane with Mank. It would be ridiculous. So like, I understand feeling disappointed that we didn't, you know, uh, process the film the way you you would like to us to have processed it but this is how we received the film i i did any of you watch it like in a vacuum before we were doing this pairing i had seen citizen kane before <laughs> uh so I, I i was spoiled on that but no I, I didn't you know i was again wasn't part of this clear debacle of a film discussion <laughs> Well, so here's the thing, Scott, since mm-hmm. you're a little ways away from your watching of Mank and did not just watch them both back to back the way we did, and we didn't really get to hear your thoughts on Mank, this is probably your opportunity to validate our discussion by telling us what you thought of Mank without getting hugely into how it compares with Citizen Kane. Oh, well, I'll, I'd be happy to. Yeah, see if you can. <laughs> so, okay, I, I can say that Mank was a film that I struggled with. I don't think it's a hugely successful overall. I don't really like the you know the look of the film. I think it's in the music, it's all very cutesy. And weirdly enough, all of the stuff tangential to the making of Citizen Kane is the stuff in the film I really liked. <laughs> you know, I'd watch a whole film about how MGM was run at the time i would watch i loved everything to do with you know the california gubernatorial mm-hmm. race anything to do with william randolph hearst i mean all that stuff i, I just ate up and those details are are fantastic and and those de- the sorts of details that, that fincher hands handles really well um it's just all the the other stuff the mankowitz stuff i didn't like that much <laughs> <laughs> And also, it's a heresy. The whole thing is a horrible heresy <laughs> uh, against uh, uh, against the genius Orson Welles. 
and I won't stand for it. Well, there is the fact. I mean, I think that the claim here that we're going to say the film itself invites comparison is apt. Uh, and I don't want to lean too hard on that because uh, that defense has been anticipated and dismissed. But the fact of the matter is that there are some really large decisions made about Mank, how to shoot it, how to direct it, the black and white, the editing, the construction that all seemingly were made in an attempt to emulate Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. And all of them are worse than Citizen Kane. And we talked about that at the time. It's not just sort of an arbitrary, let's compare this film with the best film of all time. It's kind of just an ongoing question of, well, why would you choose to make the film this way, knowing that people are going to make the comparison and and find this film wanting? If you were going to do something so very similar, couldn't you have found better ways to make it your own? I mean, it's just so it gets really banal, the references to me. I mean, the, the, the rosebud moment was just awful. <laughs> it's not like with the, what does he have a, like a bottle of alcohol instead of a instead of a snow globe? Terrible. No. All right. Well, I think we've made I think we've made our. our, our Sorry, our we, we've shot this letter down. <laughs> Costa Rica seems nice, though. Yeah. So we always put out calls for letters about anything else in the world of film. And here's one about just that. Scott, can you share it? Sure. Uh, JP writes, one of the film character tropes I've always been intrigued by is, quote unquote, even evil has standards. Characters introduced as villains whose encounter with a, quote unquote, greater evil shows them to have some kind of moral compass. Quote, I may be X, but I am not a Y, end quote. I'm particularly fascinated by characters who draw the line at being identified as a Nazi slash fascist. Even better with a strongly worded rebuke. Examples that come to mind are... Paul Servino's patriotic American mobster in The Rocketeer, quote, I may not make an honest buck, but I'm 100% American. Or Maximilian Schell's senior sergeant in Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron, quote, I am not a Nazi. I'm a Prussian aristocrat. Uh, Belloc in Raiders of the Lost Ark, bristling when Indy calls him a Nazi. Various incarnations of Magneto. I write this email sorrowfully in the early dawn hours following the January 6th siege upon the Washington Capitol. In the last 12 hours, I've been reading the rebukes against Trump from increasingly right-wing political figures and journalists, and my mind can't stop applying this, quote, even evil has standards trope to real-life people. So this is the line Mitch McConnell won't cross, eh? To get away from the heaviness of real life, I'd like to return to it as a movie trope and ask you all the following. Do you have any favorite examples of fictional movie villains or antiheroes who absolutely draw the line against a greater evil in a strongly worded line of dialogue? Or cliches that amuse you, such as the villains who won't hurt kids or or women or insist on propriety slash manners in otherwise improper or ill-mannered situations? I think the one that always stood out for me was uh, maybe because I saw it, you know, younger and uh, it it just sort of stuck with me on an emotional level was Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan in John Huston's Annie in 1982. Like here's a woman who runs an orphanage and hates children, which that in and of itself is just sort of a, a comic cliche. But I mean, she hates orphans so much that she has an entire really catchy, entertaining song about how much she hates little girls and how how much it sucks to be surrounded by little girls all the time. And, you know, she's this big, uh, dripping Disney villain-worthy character who, you know, punishes the kids and makes them live in squalor and makes them work all the time. And then at the end of the film, 
her boyfriend Rooster threatens to kill a child, threatens to kill Annie, in fact, uh, for profit. And she just immediately uh, does a heel turn. You know, that is, it, it's okay to hate them. It's okay to abuse them. But, the, you know, she's just a child, I believe is the uh, the line. You know, she's just a little girl. And she immediately turns on him and, and tries to fight him uh, to save Annie. And I always thought that that was, there are enough uh, stories where the heel turn doesn't seem particularly convincing. But in this case, you know, that line between I'm disgusted by where my life has fallen and but I'm not a killer of children actually seemed really uh, appropriate and apparently very different from the the original stage play uh, where she was entirely fine with the uh, with Rooster killing Annie. And then at the end, she gets to be in the big parade. You know, she gets her happily ever after as a result, which is kind of what you want for a Carol Burnett character anyway, you know, for for her to get a little bit of happily ever after along with everybody else. This is more of a like lighthearted uh, example, but it, it stuck out to me because uh, this past holiday season, I revisited a film I haven't seen in at least 20 years, which is Home Alone, um, which I think has a really fun example of this trope in the whole uh, wet bandit thing where these two, you know, house robbers who are willing to, you know, kill a child by the end of the film, uh, you know, one of them wants to flood every house, but the other is like, that's sick. Like he calls of a sicko he's like you're a sicko for wanting to flood this house when we're done robbing it (laughs) i actually in the very same vein like another really fun one is steve martin as the sadistic dentist in little shop of horrors when uh, (laughs) bill murray comes in and wants to uh is very very excited to have his teeth worked on and martin is immediately repelled and and chases him out and he he says the same thing ah damn sicko (laughs) and you know he also is somebody who gets a, a big hilarious song to himself detailing all of the pretty perverted things he likes in life but the line he will draw is torturing somebody who's actually going to enjoy it yeah <laughs> sick you're a sicko doesn't he call him a, a sick too yeah, literally he says uh, goddamn sicko <laughs> <laughs> i this is a funny one but i mean i think one of the best examples of this is in, in the godfather where you have the corleone family that will not enter the narcotics trade and it ends up being a problem for them. Like this one code of honor thing they hold on to, this one way of like staying old fashioned, uh, almost does the men. And in the end, it's it is only a matter of time, you know, before that that's the way the business goes. So it's not a funny one, but it's, it's one I think it's, it's used very effectively. Well, we always appreciate it when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode. To reach us, you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at another round, possibly while maintaining the recommended blood alcohol level featured in the movie. Tune in to find out for yourself. Uh, Look for that episode next Tuesday, or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you always know when a new episode drops. Until then, we're going to be tenderly caressing Pinot grapes and maybe visiting an ostrich farm or two as the sun sets on another perfect, miserable day. Red, red wine It's up to you 
Memories won't go. No memories won't go. 